You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have uh, Jay Shepard, the CEO of a company called Aravive. Uh, the website is ir.aravive.com. Aravive spelled A-R-A-V-I-V-E.com. Um, Aravive is a clinical stage biotech company. They focus on developing innovative therapies that target uh, survival pathways for cancer. So without getting into the specific receptors and pathways, which we'll talk about in a little bit, I just want to welcome Jay. Thanks for coming, Jay. Thanks for, for having me, Richard. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about um, the company and, and how the company's uh, premise and focus came about. Why cancer and what particular types of cancer do you focus on? Yep, sure. Um, so AirVive was sort of born out of research that was done um, four or five years ago at Stanford under the leadership of um, a scientist by the name of uh, Amato Giaccia, and he was the founder of, of AeroVive. And the premise was that, you know, there's there's a, one of the fairly well-known mechanisms of sort of metastases is the uh, what they call the axle gas 6 pathway. And what that means is that when the pathway, when it's a lock and key sort of mechanism, so, you know, axle is a receptor in the body and, and gas six is a ligand. And when, the, when those two um, entities merge with one another, um, they cause, um, I mean, to oversimplify, they, they cause um, cancer to metastasize and they also can cause a drug resistance. And so, you know, over the last 15 10, 15 years, there's been a lot of work that's been done to try and shut down that pathway um, to, you know, shut down and sort of short circuit the whole uh, gas six axle pathway so that you can minimize uh, drug resistance and, and metastases. And, and there's been a number of uh, companies that have really focused on sort of shutting down the um, the axle part of the, the equation. And, the, you know, there's been mixed results um, in terms of small molecules trying to sort of shut down the axle part of the, the gas six axle pathway. So what Amato Giaccia and his colleagues at Stanford did was, what if we can short circuit the whole process by using a biologic approach, very specific 
uh, biologic approach to shut down the GAS6 pathway. Um, and if, if you can figure out a way to bind GAS6, then the whole sort of lock and key mechanism, you short circuit the whole thing of the ligand and receptors sort of binding with one another. And so they, they did figure out a way to do that. Um, and so what Stanford invented and developed was a process by which they've created a, what we would call an axle decoy. So, I'm sorry, a gas-6 decoy. So what happens is you administer this product. Um, it's called AVB 500. You administer it into the body, and what happens is that the gas-6 sees it, and it binds with that um, versus natural gas-6. And then thereby, when you bind it up, it short-circuits the whole process. And if you bind up gas-6, then the body can no longer sort of bind the natural gas-6 to axle, and it shuts down the whole process. And so... A quick, quick uh, couple questions here. So on cancer cells themselves, on the surface of the membrane, is that where this gas-6 receptor or ligand exists? Mechanistically, what's where? Yeah, it, it, it is on the surface of the cell membrane. That's that's exactly where it is. So certain cancers, is it, it, it's not available on all cells, but cancer cells, for some reason, they change the expression of the cell and then this receptor appears on the surface. Is that what, what happens? Yes, there's a number of different cancer types. I think uh, we believe that most cancers express or overexpress GAS6 and Axel, but there are certain cancer types that where GAS6 and Axel is, or GAS6, I should say, is highly expressed. So, you know, cancers like ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, um, AML, triple negative breast cancers, um, head and neck cancer, and renal cancer, they, they all overexpress GAS6 highly. And so, um, you know, it, it is expressed in virtually all cancers. There are certain cancers that, you know, really overexpress it, and those are the cancers that I... How does this cause metastases? Um, do the cancer cells express both GASX and uh, AXL, and then the through cancer-to-cancer -cancer cell communication, they're letting each other know, go ahead and, you know, find a new spot and metastasize? Or, you know, what's the mechanism of metastasis through this ligand receptor? Well, I think you know, some of these highly scientific questions probably would be best served by speaking with some of our scientists. Um, but, you know, basically, like I said, most every cancer expresses GAS6 and Axel, um, and they're present on the surface of the cancer cells. Um, and when they're expressed, um, they sort of cause a chain reaction. Once the GAS6 binds up with Axel, it causes a downstream effect of metastases by um, the, the epithelial uh, cells become uh, cancer cells, and then they start growing and metastasizing. And, and uh, by administering our product and focusing on you know our biologic approach versus a, versus a small mo molecule approach, it basically you know shuts the process down effectively by going after the ligand versus the receptor. And so, um, you know, from a very high-level perspective, that's that's how our drug works. So what does a small molecule drug do versus the uh, biological solution that you've created? I mean, so wouldn't small molecules bind to these, uh, these receptors or they just bind to each other? The AXL binds to the GAS6, but you're, you're finding something else to step in there and bind to it instead. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so what I'm saying is that what the small molecules or the small molecule approaches do right now is they bind with ga or with axle, um, whereby or whereas we bind with gas six. So and the problem with binding with with axle is that um, it's with a small molecule it doesn't um, just potentially it doesn't just bind with with axle it potentially can bind with 
axle and, and other sort of axle lookalikes, if you will. And so it, it has the small molecule approach, while it's shown to be effective in a number of settings, there's a scientifically a sort of belief that um, potentially um, the gas, you know, going after gas six is more selective because what um, Aerovive has seen in their preclinical models and now they've seen in um, the phase one study, which which was in healthy volunteers, um, is effectively like a, a complete suppression of gas six. And if you shut down the gas six um, uh, ligand, then there's no way that, that Axel can be um, activated um, as opposed to going after Axel with a small molecule, there is the potential that the binding with Axel um, is not as selective as the effect that you would get if you bound with just gas six. So you're you're going after the ligand. We are going after the ligand gas six versus going after the receptor Axel, which is a small molecule. So what happens? What was the preclinical model? Was it a mouse model, or what does it look like? It was mouse models, and again, it was a. We have uh, that is, Aerovive has data in ovarian um, and AML in pancreatic, in renal cancer, um, and yeah, they were in rodent models. So, what happened in the preclinical setup? Um, did the mice already have metastatic cancer, and did it just stop communication between the you know the original tumor and the metastases, or did they have just an original tumor and then it? Prevent it stopped it from spreading to other tumors, or what happened? Yeah, the um, the rodents that you know were injected with our compound had already had metastases, and what it did was it stopped or it reversed the metastases. Um, and the ovarian cancer, for example, um, and this was you know what we call resistant ovarian cancer or resistant ovarian cancer cells in rodents. Um, in 20 to 30 percent of the cases of, of the rodents, it actually cured the cancer, um, which is almost unheard of. But it is a preclinical model, and we have yet to see. You know, we just started um, administering our drug in our phase 1B um, patient population of resistant ovarian cancer. That trial is under, undergoing right now. But again, the preclinical model and the rodents, they had resistant ovarian cancer and they and it was already metastatic and it reversed it or shut it down or cured it. Why? Um, I wonder what this uh, signaling pathway is used for. So what do the scientists uh, imagine that it's used for? Why would it stop not only the metastases, but the whole cancer in general? Well, I think what the, the scientists at Stanford and other scientists across the world, I think the hope is is that if you can shut down the axle gas six pathway, if you can shut down that process, which is a known culprit of you know, creating metastases with cancer, if you can shut it down, you can either reverse or shut down the whole metastatic process. I don't know if that's answering your question, but that has been the hope and the quest, if you will, for you know the last 15, 20 years. Um, and there's a lot of different approaches scientifically to shut down that known pathway. But this is the Aerovive approach is the first approach that has gone after the GAS-6 part of the axle GAS-6 pathway. Um, and so there are clinicians and scientists out in the communities of the world that believe that you know, this may be, can't promise it, but this may be a best-in-class approach um, to shutting that pathway down. Yeah, it would for, for patients with, you know, metastatic disease, this would be a real significant, you know, breakthrough for them. And that's what we're hoping and praying that uh, that our, our product will be able to help with. You know, we hope that all products will, you know, any approach to shut down this pathway, we hope they all work. Um, but, but we've got a unique approach, and it's it's patented, and we're the only ones 
that go after this sort of mechanism in the way that we do, which is to shut down the, the gas six piece of the equation. So I, I just wonder again, what's the role of this pathway? Is it for the cancer cells to communicate with each other so that they can have some kind of coordination and you know survive in the body? And then by blocking this, maybe they're all acting solo, and that's why you have an uncoordinated cancer, and the whole thing then is susceptible to the immune response. Or is it that this is communication only between the original tumor and the metastases. So I guess if, if it was, then you'd see the original tumor survive and none of the metastases survive. So I guess it must be, I guess is, without knowing is that this is involved in the cell-to-cell uh, -cell communication between tumor cells specifically. So they become uncoordinated and maybe weaker. Yeah, I, I think, um, again, I'm not a scientist and I don't want to pretend to sort of, you know, answer your questions, which are good ones. Uh, I don't want to sort of give you any misinformation, but as I understand it, um, this process, the scientific process that's been developed out of Stanford, it stops the cancer cells from converting into metastatic cells. Um, and the, the simple way to think about that is that cancer cells in the body will convert into um, cancer cells, and then cancer cells proliferate, grow, and, and expand in the body. And our drug, we believe, we hope that it shuts that process down from happening. So we don't have clinical results yet in patients, um, but what we think it will do is that it will, in many cases, it will um, stop the progression of the disease and in some cases will reverse it. I mean, that's really the hope. And what that means is that you'll stop the cancer cells. They'll go from, you know, kind of metastatic um, cancer cells back to normal, healthy epithelial cells. So um, in terms of, you know, um, this, this agent will be, you know, kind of used in combination with other chemotherapeutic agents. So it, it's, you know, what we call an adjunctive therapy. At this point in time, we're not really testing it by itself to sort of um, cure cancer. It's used to make the cancer agents that are being administered right now and the cancer types I've mentioned, it's meant to be adjunctive and it's meant to be sort of a, sort of a helper uh, therapy to make the chemotherapeutic agent more effective in doing their job of shutting down or slowing down the disease progression. Right. In some cases, you'll, you, you could get um, a complete reversal, and, you know, we're hoping that, you know, it may, you know, in some cases, you know, people will, you know, have complete, what you call complete responses. In other cases, you'll get just responses, and, you know, the, the drug will be very, very effective and will keep people um, alive much longer. And ultimately, there's the potential of this drug to be used as sort of maintenance therapy, um, meaning that people... It's almost like AIDS, which is a um, has become sort of a, a disease of it's become almost a chronic disease. You know, this type of therapy that we have, because it's such a safe um, product, it, it has virtually no toxicity at all in the body. Like people don't really get they don't get side effects with this drug. Um, this might very well be an ideal agent as a sort of a maintenance therapy drug that people could take um, almost indefinitely. But we have yet to be able to, you know, kind of prove that hypothesis. But uh, it's that kind of a drug, almost like a, it will work adjunctively with other drugs. And then potentially longer term, as we study this drug and develop it, it can also be used as a sort of a, a potentially a maintenance therapy. That makes sense. So you tested the mouse model. And then the first step or stage of the clinical trial, what was that like? And What's the current stage that you're in? How is that different? 
Yeah, so this last December, we started treating our first patients in what we call the Phase 1B portion of the clinical development program um, for AV, AVB 500, um, and we're, we're testing the drug in resistant ovarian. Um, so uh, we're hoping to complete that part of the study, um, you know, sometime in the second half of this year, and then we will go to, you know, this Phase 2 of the study. So right now we have a number of patients that are enrolled that are you know have had the drug administered, and it's being administered with a drug called uh, either Doxel or Taxel, sort of you know the resistant ovarian cancer um, setting. And so what we're hoping is that patients will survive longer, and patients will you know, and then we'll also see that patients um, what you call progression-free survival, um, which means obviously the, the amount of time from when the drug is administered to the time that the disease reoccurs, that we're hoping um, that our drug will make that period of time much longer, that they slow down the progression of the disease. And that's the, and then obviously we're hoping that, you know, we our overall, or the patient's overall response rates are higher and, you know, ultimately that they're surviving a longer period of time. And that's what we're looking for in the phase 1B resistant ovarian cancer study. And then the phase two will basically be looking at the same population, except it'll be a, you know, controlled study and it will be randomized, um, either uh, being combined with Doxel or Taxol um, against Taxol and placebo and Doxol and placebo. So with it, you know, we can see whether or not our drug made a difference in those settings. That would be the phase two part of the study, which, which would start again in, in the second half of this year. Why wouldn't you do a control of, you know, your drug and no chemo? Uh, because anybody with ovarian resistant ovarian cancer that you wouldn't you obviously would treat them um, <laughs> so you can't that wouldn't be fair to the patients not to treat them with drug which would be is typically taxol or, or uh, doxol so it, it wouldn't be right for us to sort of test it against nothing because that wouldn't be fair for the patient so the standard of care is either doxol or taxol um, so they will either be in that arm of the study or they'll be in the arm of the study where they get those drugs plus our drug so um, you know any of the patients in our study, um, you know, they're not giving up anything. Um, they're just participating in a clinical research study that is aimed at trying to figure out whether or not the approach of adding our drug is helpful to their um, to their disease progression or not. Well, I mean, you know, chemo is, I guess you can call it proven. It's effective in some people, not in a lot. And the whole reason you have chemo-resistant cancers is because of the chemo applied and the nature of cancer changing. How are you ever supposed to separate the effects of this drug and chemo if uh, you're not allowed to test it alone? Well, I think, you know, I think physicians historically have expected to get a certain set of results when you give, just say, Doxol or Taxol. Um, I think they expect to get a certain result um, in a resistance setting. And so let's say physicians expect to get uh, three months of progression-free survival on, on average um, when you give either Doxel or you give Taxel in a resistance setting. You know, what we're hoping is that when you test, you know, kind of our drug, when you combine it with Doxel or Taxel, um, we're hoping that we can improve on that progression-free survival of, say, on average three months uh, by adding our drug in. And I think it's a pretty direct comparison of, okay, if, if physicians historically over the last X amount of years have gotten three months of progression-free survival on those drugs, and if you add our product and they get, let's just say, five or six months of progression-free survival, I think 
physicians will be able to draw a direct correlation and say, you know, um, as long as the study is powered, right, and there's the proper number of patients, i.e. powered, right, um, you know, physicians would look at that and say that's definitely an improvement. And I think patients would be we're hoping, you know, it would be a win-win for everybody. So that's the direct comparison that you would do. Um, you would never sort of withhold the standard of care, whatever that standard of care is, from patients in the clinical study because that would be uh, unfair to patients. And, and the reason that you can add our drug safely and effectively is that, um, you know, sometimes when you add other sort of uh, anti-cancer or, you know, kind of therapeutic options to existing chemotherapy, you get additive toxicity, meaning side effects. And then there, it becomes sort of a balancing act of, you know, is it worth, you know, adding all the toxicity for, you know, whatever benefit you're hoping you might get. With our drug, there's not really a trade-off in the sense of you're not adding toxicity. You're What we're hoping is that, that we're giving them another agent and they're getting sort of better efficacy um, without adding the side effects. But that's the sad thing. If your drug works without any side effects, why do you have to add the chemo, which has all kinds of terrible side effects? You know, let's say your drug works. Then if someone wants to do something else to add to it, you know, let's say your drug and chemo become the standard of care. Now they have to piggyback on top of those two and do a third in order to get their drug through. It's kind of like, I don't know, it just seems ridiculous to me, you know, if you, um, if they're willing to do a trial, and I know this is not your fault, if they'll approve a trial that has, uh, you know, the chemo and placebo, why isn't that unfair to the patient, you know, just because this is not yet proven. And it just seems to put uh, anything besides chemo at a disadvantage because they're forcing it to be given along with it, when that may not, not even close to the right solution. You know, maybe, uh, you know, Another drug uh, with chemo does have terrible side effects, but alone it would be fine. It would work better, but they won't allow that. Yeah, well, we haven't studied our drug yet, so we whether it'll get a better effect by itself versus some of the other drugs that are what you call platinum-resistant setting. Uh, you know, for example, we're talking about uh, platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. So we don't know if our drug by itself, we haven't studied that way yet. So I, I think in cancer um, therapeutics, when you develop drugs, what you want to sort of do is is sort of be able to add on to what physicians are already doing, getting results, because there aren't a lot of drugs out there that when you start getting, you know, kind of resistance, you know, in other words, drugs stop working um, as effectively as they did earlier on when you, when you have early stage cancer. Um, when you get to that kind of setting, there's really not a lot of drugs that are super effective, um, but there are drugs that, you know, do prolong survival and, and they do um, knock down the cancer. And so physicians aren't going to stop using those drugs. You know, they're not going to stop using those drugs because they're effective. And yeah, they, they definitely have side effects and chemotherapeutics are, they're, they're difficult for the patients to tolerate in many cases, um, but they still, in many cases, will prolong their life. And, you know, given the option of prolonging your life versus not taking anything at all, you know, I think I don't want to speak for patients, but I think, you know, historically patients have opted to take the drugs that will prolong their life, even though they have side effects. And then our sort of value proposition for our product is you can add our drug in and you're not, um, you're not giving anything up. You know, you're not sort of replacing the, the efficacy of the, of the chemotherapeutic agents, but what we're hope, hoping to do is turbo boost them, you know, sort of add incremental efficacy to what the baseline drugs are, are offering them. And so I think we would all agree with you, Richard, that um, we wish that there were drugs that 
patients could get that didn't have any side effects and that, you know, just cured their disease. But we haven't found those drugs um, by and large that, you know, I don't think those drugs have, you know, we're still trying to discover those drugs. Um, in certain cancer types, you know, certain types of leukemia, they have figured out how to, you know, cure certain types of cancer. But the ones that we're sort of trying to help out with, um, our first sort of foray is a resistant ovarian cancer. We, I don't think the world has discovered drugs that are curative yet. So what you're left with then is, can something be added into existing drugs that will have an incrementally beneficial effect to the patients? And, and we believe, although we haven't proven it yet, we believe that our drug um, has the potential to really help those existing drugs out. But you wouldn't want to take those drugs away um, unless you found something that could sort of just, you know, cure the disease. And, and I'm afraid at this moment, we don't have evidence that our drug by itself will cure it. Um, so, and I don't think there's really any drugs out there that have been able to show that yet. So again, the, the hypothesis or the hope is that, and the prayer is that we will be additive to the drugs that are already giving them a beneficial effect um, in terms of, of efficacy. So that's... Well, how would you uh, prove it that your drug may have positive effects on its own. You know, let's say you do it and hopefully the trial works and works well. Mm -hmm. How would you ever then say, well, why not just try the drug alone? Maybe it'll work so well that we won't need chemo or is that just not allowed? Well, I think it's, you know, drug development is sort of a, always a stepwise sort of process. You know, if you think about any therapeutic area, you, you know, you take it step by step. And so typically what you do is you develop your drug and you test it in patients who are, you know, really uh, having a hard time or are not responding to conventional drugs. And you start there. And then as the drug sort of shows that it, it can slow down or reverse or you know, stop disease progression, then you start using it earlier and earlier, um, meaning, you know, first line, second line therapy versus, say, second or third line. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I, I just, like I said, I'm just wondering whether, uh, you know, but okay, it, it makes sense as far, as far as it can go, but okay. Um, so what's the timeline? So you said by middle of this year, you're going to be in phase 2B or, you know, what's the timeline for phase 2, 3, and then I don't know if there's a four until it, until it actually comes to the market. So the timeline would be that, it, you know, phase two would start sometime in the second half of this year. Um, so sometime between July and December of this, of this year, we would start our phase two trial. And then we expect to see results of that trial sometime toward the end of 2020. Um, and then after you're done with your phase two trial, then you go to your pivotal trial or your phase three trial which would be sort of, you know, a larger, uh, it would also be a randomized trial um, that, you know, we would then take that data and submit that to the FDA to try and get them to approve this drug so it could be used, you know, in the resistant ovarian cancer population that would be available, what you say, commercially. So um, that's more or less the timing insofar as um, the resistant ovarian cancer setting. So if things work out well, and the drug shows good efficacy, um, how long would it be ballpark do you think until it's uh, available as a therapy to the general public? Um, you know, we haven't really given the public, I mean, we don't know exactly what the timeline looks like in terms of the completion of the phase three trial, because that's obviously a larger trial, but, you know, it could be, um, it'd be sometime before 2025. Um, so 2025, it would be sometime before then, probably, hopefully, 
you know, several years or a couple of years before that. Um, but we haven't disclosed exactly when that would be. Um, and the phase two trial has to start accruing. Then we have to complete it. Then we have to sort of assess what the data and the results, you know, how the data looks. And then you start your phase three trial. Um, and then that, you know, takes a year or two to accrue, meaning enroll patients, getting the results of that. So, you know, if you can imagine that, that would be in the early 2020s. Okay, very good. So what's the best way for uh, folks to find out more, uh, you know, get in contact, ask questions, et cetera? Um, I think, you know, they can go on our website. Um, they can also look up, uh, it's called clinicaltrials.gov um, is, you know, sort of a standard place where you can find information on clinical trials on, on all kinds of therapeutic trials that are undergoing. So they can contact the company directly by looking at, um, you know, airvive.com or they can um, go on clinicaltrials.gov and on the web in general. And I think the website, there, there's um, obviously contact information for the company and can triage uh, any questions folks would have into the appropriate uh, scientific and medical folks. That's great. Well, Jay, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Okay, Richard, thank you for your time and your questions, and um, uh, hopefully um, it was uh, the information was helpful. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.